Last week, the government postponed the release of its review of the Overseas Investment Act. The move signalled that National may be about to do a U-turn on its intention to make foreign investment easier here and comes amid growing concern that too much land could be bought up by foreign companies. However, is overseas investment good for the economy? In this Radio New Zealand Insight programme, economics correspondent Nigel Sterling has been investigating. New Zealand's economy is hooked on money from foreigners. Direct foreign investment last year was equivalent to nearly 60% of the economy's annual output. That's nearly twice the level in Australia and doesn't count investment in the share market or overseas debt. New Zealanders, nearly 320,000 of whom work for foreign-controlled firms, are naturally wary. Here's what some locals in Thai Happy had to say about foreign ownership. If people invest in New Zealand, is the money going to stay mostly in New Zealand? Is it going to be reinvested here or is it going to just sail overseas and not leave a trace? There's definitely benefits that you can see out of doing foreign investments, but... You can see the negatives. I suppose if you just more put more control and monitoring around the negatives, then what's wrong with it, really? We do need a lot more employment, and if it can be created by someone just buying, you know, not or creating jobs, then I think it's all good. Why can't why can't well, it be a, why can't it be a New Zealander investor instead of an overseas? Well, Terry Beard hit it they? on the nail. Where are they? But has foreign investment helped New Zealanders become better off, and will it do so in future? ANZ New Zealand Chief Economist Cameron Bagri says foreigners' cash is keeping the economy going. We just don't save enough and we need to fund our investment plans via offshore savings. So that leaves us very reliant upon offshore capital markets or our offshore equity in the form of asset sales uh, to fill that void. The Council of Trade Unions economist Bill Rosenberg takes a different view. Foreign investors obviously want to return on their dollar and currently one of our biggest exports of resources is the dividends and interest on foreign investment in New Zealand. The level of that drives our current account deficit and it's on average round about equal to the amount that the country earns from its agriculture, forestry and and fishing industry. The part of GDP that they gain for us is about equal to what goes out in dividends and interest. So it's a big drain on our resources and therefore we ought to be very careful about the quality of that foreign investment. Around 60% of direct foreign investment in New Zealand comes from Australia. Much of that in the last decade came from so-called private equity firms. Plastics maker Aperio Film Pack was bought by Catalyst Investment Managers in 2005. Barry Davies has worked at Aperio's Mount Wellington factory for most of the past decade. He says the previous two owners had both been involved in the plastics industry. Boredom Film Pack, they were American. Uh, They put no investment into the company whatsoever. And then we went to AEP, which was a film-based company. They put new technology into the factory and increased productivity, of course. But now we're with the new company. All we've seen is a lot of restructuring, a lot of downturn in work, and now we're facing redundancies. It's all boiled down to cost. If it's not cost-worthy, it just doesn't happen. And this is with a new uh, owner who doesn't have experience in the industry, a private equity owner. What's been the sorts of changes that you've seen since they've come in? Well, price hikes, losing customers... 
they're not very, uh, what would you say, worker-friendly. <laughs> they demand a lot and they don't give much back. Internationally, private equity owners over the past decade have slashed costs and capital spending. That way they maximise the value of their investment asset before selling, usually within five years of its purchase. But does this match the experience of New Zealand during the past decade? Statistics New Zealand figures show $53 billion of profits accrued to foreign owners during this time. Of that, $35 billion was repatriated in dividends, while just $18 billion was reinvested here. New Zealand and welcome to Morning Report on Tuesday, October the 20th with Jeff Robinson and Maggie Barry here. In today's programme, as share markets around the world slide, we go to Wall Street for the latest news. The Wall Street Stock Exchange looks set to fall by a record level today, approaching the market collapse which sparked the Great Depression. In frantic panic selling, the Dow Jones Index has lost more than 282 points, wiping about 12.5% off the value of shares, which is marginally under... The Following the 1987 crash... New Zealand's share market struggled to build up any sort of momentum. Foreign takeovers played a big part, accounting for 48 of the 127 firms to have delisted between 1992 and 2007. Mark Weldon is the chief executive of the stock exchange operator NZX. He says lost dividends are a drain, especially when New Zealanders earn comparatively less from overseas investments. What is very, very strange about New Zealand is that absent Fonterra and a couple of others, we don't have at-scale businesses generating a lot of economic wealth overseas. If you think about why the US for a very long time wanted a strong dollar, it was so that its companies could go overseas, buy businesses and, and repatriate the dividends. That's what a strong dollar policy allows you to do. We've tended to favour a weak dollar policy, which has favoured exporters. What that has meant is it's very cheap to buy our businesses, and that's exactly what you've seen occur. Mark Weldon believes floating minority stakes in state-owned enterprises would boost the country's overseas income. You uh, run into a number of interesting questions is actually around the SOE sector. That is around 15 to 20% of the assets in the economy and they are basically domestic-only businesses. So it's going to be very, very hard for us to get that balance right if we have our at-scale businesses, which are the SOEs, the 100% owned at least, uh, stuck basically on a domestic focus. And the challenge then becomes, should the government or should the taxpayer logically fund overseas growth and overseas acquisitions by businesses? Mark Weldon says the SOE's constitutions could be easily rewritten to prevent foreign takeovers. But foreign ownership in New Zealand shouldn't be a one-way street. So I'm just walking along Wellington's Lambton Quay and I'm going to visit the bank. Good afternoon. How Hi are there. you? Good. Um, I'd just like to talk to someone about uh, a loan, getting a loan. Yeah, sure. Um, take a seat and I'll get one of our bankers to come over and see you. Thanks. Um, Karen, this gentleman just wants to talk about a home loan. All right, that's great. Come on through. That might have been a tricky conversation in late 2008 if it weren't for the bank's Australian ownership. The banks had been exposed by the collapse of Lehman Brothers, which caused world money markets to seize. The Australian parents pumped billions into their subsidiaries, helping keep credit flowing in New Zealand. Foreign owners should bring other benefits. 
Work by the Treasury shows New Zealand firms struggle overseas where potential for growth is larger than at home. Distribution, brands and new products are all problems for New Zealand companies abroad. Treasury says foreign ownership can forge relationships which help overcome these obstacles. As Matt Orr of Fisher & Paykel Appliances, which is now 20% owned by Chinese rival Hire, explains. It comes back to the resources and commitment that you'd have to do that. You're trying to build a, a brand presence in a market that is getting heavily influenced by Western premium brands. Going in with Hire, they already have the networks on the ground, the business experience, and they can build that brand more efficiently and effectively than Fisher & Paykel could. We had done the business case a few years ago and it really just didn't stack up for us to do that alone. And a great example is we've just opened an experience centre in Hangzhou, which is a city about 100 kilometres from Shanghai. That's in a luxury mall complex. We've been hearing via other sources that getting a site in that mall is like getting gold dust. That's a demonstration of the sort of relationships that hire can bring and how they can catapult us up into that market a lot quicker than we could have ourselves. Could Fisher & Paykel Appliances achieve the same without selling 20% to hire? Having equity in the company for hire gives them a seat at the table. They have two board members and that obviously gives them a voice at the top where strategy is being decided plus they share in the benefit of the upside and that's the key isn't it they could have done all of those other things through joint ventures well they possibly could have yes uh the only thing there is again whether the extent of the relationship it's something they would have entered into had it just been a sort of one-off single contract for say the chinese market their intent was obviously looking to do something wider than that which is really where we've ended up today but do these relationships always work to New Zealand's advantage, especially when full control of a local firm goes overseas? Wellington antenna maker Deltec, which employed 100 staff, was sold to US-owned Andrew Corporation in 2001. The company's manufacturing was shifted overseas and its R&D department eventually followed. Former part owner Peter Graham says it would have been hard for Deltec to get bigger in local ownership. It was relationships and money, so that became a problem. Our customers, the operators, like to deal with system builders, the Nokias, the Ericsons, the Motorola's of the world, and those people, those big companies, like big companies to deal with. They like to deal with companies with deep pockets themselves, right test gear, test ranges and all those things. So it was not easy for us to build relationships with those companies. Peter Graham had been hopeful Daltec's R&D jobs would have stayed here, but it just didn't work out. The CTU's Bill Rosenberg says stricter tests should be applied to foreigners wanting to buy local firms. There are no hurdles for investments worth less than $100 million and cursory tests for larger purchases. All that the Overseas Investment Act does for those business investment, which is by far the largest part of foreign direct investment in New Zealand, is to say, is an individual who is, uh, has some control over the investment of good character, are they putting money in? And these things, they are barely policed. There is, have been no cases that I'm aware of that foreign direct investment of that nature has been refused on the basis of those criteria.
So for the most important investment, there is actually no control over what comes in. For land and for fishing quota, there is considerably more power there for the Overseas Investment Office and the ministers to prevent or put conditions on investment. Some of the criteria they use there are good ones, and they should be applied to those that much bigger range of investment. Bronwyn Howell is at the business-backed think tank, the Institute for the Study of Competition and Regulation. She agrees the rules for business investment leave open a major loophole. It opens up the possibility that a foreign person can buy an interest in a New Zealand firm and then engage in managerial behaviour that is actually detrimental in the long run to the New Zealand economy. For example, perhaps there's some intellectual property that's been developed in New Zealand that might be beneficial to the New Zealand economy, but a foreign owner may repatriate that property offshore, depriving the New Zealand economy of some of that income down the track. A year ago, the government announced it was reviewing the Overseas Investment Act. The review aims to simplify the rules to attract more foreign investors while protecting the national interest. The Minister of Finance, Bill English, maintains the business investment part of the Act is not a major problem. It would need to be quite a strong case, I think. People would have to show um, some real um, detriment from uh, foreign, foreign investment coming in on the business side to persuade us that we would have to tighten up the test. I mean, generally, when there's, if there's difficulties around foreign investment, usually it's around uh, where people come in and pay too much for the asset and then get in difficulty. Well, you need to remember there's a New Zealand seller benefiting from that. Although 97% of applications were approved between 2001 and 2009, the Act applies stricter tests for purchases of sensitive land. Sensitive land includes rural land over 5 hectares and any freehold or leasehold land next to water and parks. Buyers must prove a benefit to New Zealand before consent is given, usually by the Overseas Investment Office, sometimes by a government minister. The Green Party's Russell Norman's scuffle with Chinese security men dominated headlines during Xi Jinping's June visit. But lawyer Stephen Frank says the real action from the Chinese vice president's visit was behind closed doors. The former ACT MP says pressure will have come on the government to relax land investment rules. China complicates it because it's so murky, because it's not easy to know the extent to which decisions will be made by an owner purely on economic grounds or whether there might be strategic plans there. So in other words, they might be willing to pay more for a long-term stake that's seen as the window into an industry to affect pricing or might be uh, sort of, if you like, a lost leader type equivalent that is designed not to make the best practical use of the asset but to serve a purpose that China has. Countries are scrambling to understand the implications of China's rapid economic rise. Australia's exports to China have doubled in the past five years. Over the same time, investment from China into Australia has surged nearly 100-fold. Fergus Hansen from the Lowy Institute for International Policy has polled Australians' attitudes to China. 
This year we had 57% of Australians saying the government was allowing too much investment from China. That was up seven points since the year before. While China isn't by any stretch of the imagination the, the largest investor in Australia, it is rising quite rapidly off a low base and it tends to be invested in areas that are quite prominent. So we had the attempt to take a larger stake in Rio Tinto, for example, a very large Australian mining company. How's that seen by Australians as being harmful to the country's economic interests? There's also, I think, a a sense that it's buying up our strategic resources, the minerals in the ground that we depend upon to drive economic growth in the country, and that a lot of China's investment seems to be targeted in these areas, and it's by state-controlled firms, uh, not the private sector, which I think creates a difference in perception about whether these investments are going to be run on a commercial basis or more from a country's own interest, China's own interest. The Australian government issued new guidelines for foreigners wanting a chunk of the lucky country. Applications from state or state-linked foreign investors now face more scrutiny. Canada too is looking more closely at investment backed by foreign governments and has introduced guidelines. Mark Katz is a partner at Toronto law firm Davies Ward Phillips and Weinberg, specialising in foreign investment. The concern is that state-owned enterprises may not operate in normal commercial ways and may be motivated not by you know, shareholder concerns, for example, but by dictates from the government. You know, notwithstanding all of the denials that the SOE guidelines were directed at specific countries, I think there's no question that there were concerns about what investments by Chinese state-owned entities would mean for Canada. The guidelines consider stock market listings of acquisitions and retaining Canadians in key roles. Mark Katz says these are factors the Canadian government probably would have taken into account anyway, but the requirements have been made much more explicit through the guidelines. For a time, the Chinese were, because of this, were looking elsewhere and sort of shelved plans to invest in Canada. I think to some extent, even the investments that took place, they were deliberately minority shareholdings as opposed to, you know, generally speaking, acquisitions of control. Again, because the the Investment Canada Act only is triggered when there's an acquisition of control. And so there was a thought to keep the investment at a low enough level so as not to have to get involved with the SOEs. But with the passage of time, I think there's been a a greater degree of comfort uh, developed that uh, these guidelines were not intended as a disincentive to investment and have not been applied at all in a way that would or should act as a disincentive to investment. Bill English says the government hasn't considered similar measures here. This issue arises partly because over the next 10 years or so, the people with the cash who are ready to invest are not our traditional overseas investors. Our traditional overseas investors have been UK, US uh, and certainly Australia which is our largest. Now the Australian economy is still in good shape and they'll be investing here but clearly the weight of money has moved to the Asian economies uh, and the UK and the US and Europe have now got large debt problems so there's no doubt we're going to be getting a different kind of investor looking in. Not the Anglo-Saxon model They're a bit less transparent, but harder to see who exactly is who and how they operate. We want to focus on the tests about the benefit to New Zealand, 
and the character of the investor rather than trying to discriminate in, in ways that I think would become really quite difficult given the nature of the overlap of government and commercial interests across many Asian economies. The government last week again postponed the release of its review of the Overseas Investment Act. The Prime Minister attributed the delay to increased foreign interest in land. But what is the level of interest from overseas? Harcourt's National Rural Manager Kim Shannon says two years ago the British dominated foreign interest. Interest from Asians, particularly Chinese, has come to the fore since, as the market has cooled dramatically. These buyers, often looking for three to four farms at a time, have been lured by a 30% fall in prices. China's food production is constrained by a shortage of land, limited water and outdated technology. This year China imported US corn for the first time in 15 years, despite a national goal of self-sufficiency. Demand for New Zealand milk powder and logs has surged in the past year. James Brent is a former London banker looking to take advantage of these trends. His company, the Acheron Group, is buying tens of thousands of acres of land in Eastern Europe. There is quite a strong wall of money that would like to get invested in farming. And certainly money that hasn't been there to invest in farming in the past. I think there was definitely quite a strong focus on farming as a new asset class that I certainly saw in 2006-2007. People were starting to really buy into this population growth, change in protein diet argument. As, the, as we went through the financial crises that we've seen that investors were very cautious about putting their money into anything, and in particular into new asset classes. And I think as people have, have got more visibility coming out of the crises, they're saying, OK, well, where can we generate high returns? Where can we get diversified returns? Agriculture just ticks a lot of boxes. You have invested in New Zealand before. How does New Zealand stack up relative to other countries? Land prices are very high. And it's very difficult to generate significant returns, whereas in Eastern Europe and Latin America, uh, there are better returns to be had. But I think that is not to say that the quantum of capital that will be invested will not benefit New Zealand landowners, because it's a relatively small country and it doesn't require a huge amount of incremental foreign capital to really move the market. So what extra protections, if any, is the government planning? especially if it's worried, as the Prime Minister has said, about large tracts of land falling into foreign hands. National looks certain to scrap the previous government's strategic asset test. This was brought in, though never used, to block a Canadian bid for Auckland International Airport in 2008. National said strategic assets were never properly defined and investment rules had become marred by uncertainty. The government said it would consider a national interest test instead, clearly outlining which assets won't be sold. But lawyer Stephen Franks isn't expecting any changes in the legislation. I don't think that they'll change the law because I don't think that there's enough consensus in the New Zealand Parliament at the moment to do it without a whole lot of point scoring. And so my guess is that we won't see a change, but we'll see a change in the practice. More and more decisions being reserved to the minister. Uh, and the consequence will be, quite correctly, people saying this is, leads to unpredictability, it's potential for corruption, uh, it is much harder to 
attract investment. It probably lowers prices to people selling in New Zealand. It's got all of those consequences, but I can't see an alternative. I think that the pressures in a democracy on politicians will be high. Stephen Frank says the government a year ago was ready to clear away impediments to foreign investment. Some restrictions were to be dumped, and where investment would be stopped, clearly outlined. But the furore over Chinese interest in the 16 Crafer farms has provided it with more than a few headaches. Mr Frank says the government realised it couldn't ignore public concern and changed the law to boost foreign investment. At the same time, it can't afford to upset a major trading partner like China by overtly making it tougher to invest here. The Minister of Finance, Bill English, concedes the game has changed. Well, I don't think you can create perhaps as much certainty as um, I might have expected 12 months ago. The issue with the previous government was that they introduced new criteria halfway through a process because they were a bit worried about where it was headed and uh, we found pretty negative investor reaction to that. They seem to be less concerned about what the tests are, prefer to know what they are, and more concerned about random intervention in a process that they've already invested in. If there is an element of discretion, there's still that element of uncertainty there. You're still left with something of the same problem, aren't you? An element of discretion means some uncertainty for the applicant. In discussions I've had with people involved as overseas investors in New Zealand, they know that overseas investment isn't always has a political tinge to it, that at different times governments and the general public are going to take views about it. If they think there's too much of it or it's in the wrong sort of asset or it represents some kind of threat to the consumer or the national interest. So I think they're fairly pragmatic and I don't think we need to be driven by the need for absolute certainty for the applicant. But what is the cost of not making it easier for foreign investors by providing clearer rules? Making life tougher for foreign investors would mean less competition for local assets. But Lincoln University Professor of Agribusiness Keith Woodford says there's more to the debate than land prices. He says dairy company Sinlay's recent deal with China's Bright Foods will boost access to that country's consumers. The lacklustre meat industry could also benefit from the same access to markets and capital from such a tie-up. But Professor Woodford is against farm-to-consumer ownership of New Zealand's primary industries. Land, he says, should remain in local control. I think we have to ask questions with these big integrated companies, which go from farm right through to foreign consumer, and if they are overseas owned, as to just where the benefits do come to New Zealand. If you're a foreign owned company, you have a lot of flexibility as to where you make your profits within the supply chain. Keith Woodford says New Zealanders need to debate these issues now. He, like many others, believe that if it is left another five years, any debate will be redundant. That Radio New Zealand Insight programme was written and presented by Nigel Sterling. Technical production was by William Saunders and it was produced by Philippa Tolley.